So we begin reading from Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as had any need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his white wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it, heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they shall carry you out also. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns round Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, 
Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this could, would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Now when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he spoke to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thudas rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of, of men about 400 joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of, is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is God's word to us today. What's so bad about having no fear? It depends on what you're fearing. There's some things in life where it's not a big deal if you don't take it seriously. There are other things in life where it's deadly serious. 
One of the hobbies that I have is to go hiking with Aiden and often will invite people to climb Mount Beowa, which actually turns out to be one of the most dangerous mountains in Queensland. Having 10 times more emergency rescues than any other mountain and recording several deaths across the years. Our friends usually hear these stories and they, they chicken out. Uh, but our secret to getting people along and not chickening out is by not telling them how dangerous it actually is. <laughs> we usually say it's not any more dangerous than climbing Mount Kutha. <laughs> One of our climbs, our tactic backfired. It backfired really badly. One of our friends took that concept of not being scared of the mountain to the extreme. She had no fear when she probably really should have. Uh, we were climbing this rock cliff uh, and she's climbing it with these narrow footholds, one foot at a time, no hands, and leaning backwards away from the rock face. She's one slip away from certain death, um, and slip she did. Thankfully, I was there directly under to catch her, but if I weren't there, she wouldn't be with us today. Proper fear of the right things is important. In our passage today, we're going to be looking at people who don't have a proper fear of God, and it shows in how they oppose him, both within the church and also outside the church. And then we're also going to look at what a proper fear of God looks like. Uh, so here's the main point. If you hear this and then fall asleep for the rest of the sermon, I'll be happy. Here's the main point. The church grows despite opposition because it is advanced by God. So walk in the fear of God. I repeat that. The church grows despite opposition because it is advanced by God, so walk in the fear of him. We'll jump into the story on a high note. In chapter 4, verse 32, we see all the believers were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were their own, but they shared everything they had. It's a picture of the church living spirit-empowered lives following the risen Lord Jesus. And one, day, one way in which they show this is through their unity and their deep love for one another. We see them um, to the point that they'd sell their land and they'd sell their houses without any thought of return. They'd take this money from the sale and they'd lay it at the apostles' feet so that the apostles can distribute it to whoever had need. This is a picture of the church healthy, the church growing and swimming well. And to this husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira. Let's pick up the story again at the start of chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira have sold a piece of property, and like the rest of the Christians at the time, they brought, it to, uh, brought the proceeds to the Apostle Peter, uh, and they've laid it at their feet and say, we're giving you everything that we sold it for. When in reality, that's a lie. They've kept an amount back for themselves. Peter rebukes Ananias, and in verse 5, Ananias hears these words and drops dead. The young men that were around in the gathering, they take his body outside, they wrap him up, and they bury him. Talk about an interesting first sermon to preach on. Um, Anyway, let's, let's unpack some of the questions that stem from this. Is this Peter being ungrateful here? Is he trying to pinch every dollar from this 
this couple. No, look with me at verse 4. Peter says two things here. When you own the land, you owned it. There's no obligation for you to sell it. It's not some communist regime imposed by the apostles. And number two, even after you sold it, you still had full control over the amount that you wanted to give. You didn't have to give all of it. So if the amount that they gave wasn't the problem, what was it? People can point to Ananias and Sapphira craving for praise and their hypocrisy, or maybe even their love for money. But would God strike them dead because of that? I think there's something bigger going on here. It's the spiritual reasons and the context that made the, cons- uh, made the consequence so severe. Let's investigate it. In verse 3, Peter says it's Satan filling Ananias' heart to do this. This is a devil trying to have his first infiltration into the spirit-empowered movement. Last week, we saw Ben as he unpacked the devil have his first opposition and his first attempt to destroy the church from forces outside of it. The apostles were put on trial and they were persecuted. This week, the devil tries his hand at destroying it from within the church with blatant disregard of God. We see in verse 3, you, Ananias, have lied to the Holy Spirit. And in verse 4, you've lied not to man, but to God. Why is this a big deal? So far in the book of Acts, we've seen that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the ascended Lord Jesus who's been poured out on the disciples to do a task, to fill them, to empower them so that they can grow believers to the ends of the earth. For Ananias and Sapphira to lie to the Holy Spirit, it shows that these guys blatantly disregard the Spirit's work and His purpose to grow believers to the end of the earth. Ananias and Sapphira don't fear God. And if this problem was left unaddressed, it would grow. Can you imagine a church that's filled with people who don't care about God, people who blatantly disregard him, people who are there for the praise of man and what other people think of them, instead of genuinely wanting to live, follow and serve God. And this was the very start of the church. And as with anything else, if the start of something fails, the rest of it is likely to flop as well. That's why Ananias and Sapphira's consequence was so severe. They were clear opponents to the church The church is the place where God's salvation plan for the whole world is being rolled out. God sends a clear message that he is to be feared in the church and that he is working powerfully to ensure that the church grows. To illustrate this, uh, imagine with me for a second our church plant that's happening in a year or two's time in the western suburbs. We've gone over there, we've raised up a core team with Ben as the founder and the head. And one of these core members within this church plant is openly going against Ben. Ben's trying to take the church in this direction, but this member is trying to do their own thing and blatantly going against Ben. What's Ben going to do? Maybe he'll smite him down. Maybe not, but (laughs) he'll uninvite this member so that he can't continue to mess things up and that will show a clear message to people that this won't be tolerated. So jumping back to Acts, 
because this internal opposition to the church is dealt with, the church is able to grow. God cares deeply about the state of his church. So he drives out this obstacle from within. And because of it, we see in verses 5 and 11, a great and proper fear of God spreads among the church. This is what the church was missing before. People have got the clear message that God is to be feared and that his presence is with this Christianity movement. That then leads on to be able to give us that same summary statement that we've seen again and again in Acts. In verse 14 it says, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So we're back to this picture of smooth sailing. We're back to this picture of the church healthy. After Acts 2, we saw about 3,000 believers come to faith in Jesus. In Acts 3, there's 5,000 people. And now in Acts 5, there's just too many believers to count. There's multitudes being added to the Lord. The gospel and the kingdom of God is growing and spreading, just like Jesus said it would in Acts 1. Okay, so now that the opposition from inside is dealt with, what we have next is more opposition from outside the church, through the Jewish leaders. To set the scene again, jump with me back to verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people by the hands of the apostles. In verse 15 and 16, people are carrying people out to the streets that even Peter's shadow might fall upon them and that they may be healed. How would you respond if you saw these things? If people were being healed just by the touch of a shadow? You'd be awestruck. You'd be amazed. You'd want to follow this God who Peter um, believed in, and you'd fear God. But how do the Jewish leaders respond to these things? Verse 17 and 18, they're filled with jealousy. So they arrest the apostles, throwing them into jail. They're straight up envious. They see the works that are being done, and they're not concerned about the works. They're concerned about the followers. They're saying, these guys have more followers than us. They're more influential than us. So they throw them into prison. But again, we see God working powerfully to overcome this external opposition to his church. The first way we see God doing that is in verses 19 to 21. The apostles are in jail and God sends an angel to bust open the prison doors. After being freed, the apostles go back to the temple and continue preaching, where again, just like last week, they're brought before the Jewish uh, council to be questioned. And again, Jewish leaders have seen a miracle of the prison doors being flung open, and their concern isn't that. Their concern is... Um, the, these apostles who are amassing a following and speaking against them. Their hearts are so hard and unperceiving to the works of God and that they continue to oppose the apostles and God himself. Just like Ananias and Sapphira, they don't fear God. Let's not miss the irony here. These are the Jewish leaders this is the high priest, the people who should know God the best, the ones who should recognize God as he's working out these signs and miracles. But their jealousy and their love for man's approval 
makes them blind to it. They're blind to this vivid demonstration of God's power. Peter then gives his defense before the Jewish council. And what's their reaction again? In verse 33, they're enraged to the point of wanting to kill the apostles. The second way we see God working is through using one of the Jewish leader's own teachers, Gamaliel. Let's look at his speech from verse 34. His argument there is that there have been other Jewish messianic movements with other people claiming to be the Christ. But these movements scatter once their leader is killed. So he says, we've killed Jesus already. You saw him on a cross, we killed him. So let's stand back. Let's leave these guys. It's going to die out. Unless, of course, it's really from God. Looking at verse 38, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. There's two things I want us to get us out of this speech. Number one, there's no stopping the advancement of church and the gospel if it's God's purpose. But that doesn't mean there's no opposition to it. We'll see a common theme in the book of Acts. Every time the gospel is met with opposition, God finds a way to advance it. And number two, there at the end of verse 39, Gamaliel gets to the heart of the Jewish leaders and the heart of the problem. They might be opposing God and his purposes. They don't fear him. So Gamaliel's words strike a chord with the Jewish leaders and the apostles are released. God worked in different ways through flinging open the prison doors and through the speech of this Jewish leader. But both these events testify to the God who's behind it and the God that's to be feared and taken seriously. Because the external opposition from outside the church is resolved, we again return to this mini things are going well summary statement that we see in verse 42. Every day in the temple and from house to house, the apostles did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Time and time again, there's internal and external opposition to the church. But because God is advancing it, church and the gospel spreads. And haven't we seen that in today's day and age? We're standing here 2,000 years later, the other side of the world, hearing the same good news that Jesus is a Christ and he came to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. Praise God for that. Let's pause for a moment and think about what we can learn from these stories. Ananias and Sapphira They don't fear God, so they lie to him. The Jewish leaders, they don't fear God, so they oppose him. They don't fear God having hard, unperceptive hearts that care more about man's thoughts than God's. So application point number one is we fear God. One way the people in our passage show their lack of fear of God is that they care more about their reputation than what God thought. Is that the same with us? You can lie to men easy. You can come to church on a Sunday and pretend that you're more religious, more spiritual, more faithful, more generous than you really are. 
you can lie to our faces and we will generally trust you because we're relatively trusting people. You can never lie to God. If your reputation is what you treasure, you're showing a severe lack of awareness of God and the work that he's doing in and through the church. A right and proper fear of God looks like taking him seriously and wanting to genuinely walk for him and not for the praise of man and other people around you. Another way we show a lack of fear of God is by undercutting the Spirit's work that he's doing in and through the church. Instead of building up the church, you come to church on a Sunday bad-mouthing a teacher or a leader of the church because you want to seem smarter or wiser. Maybe it looks like talking the talk, but during the week, we're doing things to tarnish the name of Jesus Christ. It might seem like a small matter, but like my friend at Mount Beowa, and like Ananias and Sapphira, and like the Jewish leaders, if you don't fear God, you're playing a dangerous game. What's it going to look like for you to fear God? I'll leave that with you to think about and discuss with the person next to you after the sermon. The next application point is that dealing with the internal and external opposition to the church allows it to grow. Internally, do we confront our brothers and sisters when we see them sinning, when we see them opposing God and not fearing Him? I'll be the first to say that because of my background, I don't like confronting people. I don't like bringing up conflict. I don't want to lose those friendships because I care about what people think about me. But if I, if we were to take God seriously and his intentions, we're going to get over that fear of men and go, maybe go up to our brother and sister and maybe ask lovingly and gently, hey, I've noticed this. What do you think about it? We fear the Lord not just for ourselves, but for others. We'll take those courageous steps to rebuke and restore our brothers and sisters of Christ for their growth. And because we know that when the church is healthy internally, it's able to grow. As for dealing with opposition from the outside, we can look no better to, than the Apostle Peter and his response and his God-fearing response. Let's look at verse 29. This is really powerful. Peter is being questioned by people, people who are angry enough to have him killed. And what does he say? He looks them in the eye and says, we must obey God rather than man. Or in other words, we must obey God rather than you. What incredible boldness Peter's showing here. This time in Acts 5, the apostles are led off with a mere flogging of 39 lashes. But later on in their lives, we know that these, these apostles continue preaching the same gospel message to the point where they're executed and killed. And these apostles know that. They know they're going to suffer. They know they're going to die. But even seeing that future ahead, they don't give up. They don't drag their feet and do it reluctantly. In verse 41, we see they rejoice that they can suffer for the sake of Christ and the gospel. We know it's not just the apostles. We know the early Christians. They faced persecution and suffering and death 
with tremendous boldness. You know, for the first 300 years, there were 10 systematic persecutions of Christians uh, in the Roman Empire where they were systematically imprisoned, plundered, tortured, and killed. During that period, there was probably 100 years where it was illegal to be a Christian completely. And yet we know that these early Christians, as, as they died, as they were thrown to the lions, as they were tortured and executed, many of them died singing and praying for their executioners. Christians were crucified in droves right along the highway to Rome so that people could see them and mock them openly. But they faced it with immense boldness. Where do they get this immense courage to face this kind of suffering and imminent death? In chapter 5, verse 30, we see, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Peter and these early Christians have a savior and leader who died for them. They have a savior and leader who conquered death so that they may do the same. They know Jesus who has given them forgiveness and the repentance of sins. Forgiveness of sins. They have a proper fear of Jesus, so they take him seriously and they trust him with their lives, even in the face of death, even with man threatening them. They don't fear man, they fear God. So if you're not a Christian today, today, I'd really like to invite you to meet this Jesus who many people trust in um, and people who, uh, this Jesus who people live for, the same Jesus that many people die for. I'd like you to consider fearing him. This is the offer that Jesus has for you. Though he was God, he faced death himself so that he could give eternal life to you. He can give you repentance, a changed life, and the forgiveness of sins. We often think that because we repent, then God forgives us. But really, we can't do that. We can't change ourselves. It's something that God gives. It's something that God loves to give. So if that's you today and you want to respond, uh, pray with me at the end that you'd also receive this gift that God is offering to you. And if you are a Christian and with us today, know that one of the ways that we walk in a proper fear of God is by preaching the same gospel message, even in the face of opposition. It's going to mean like being like Peter, being so convinced of God's work in the death and the resurrection of Jesus You're not going to fear man, but instead you're not going to shut up about this Jesus who died for people so that he can give them the gift of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Let's think about a very real situation. Maybe you're in your workplace or at school or at a family gathering. There's a group of people and they're making fun of Christians and people who believe in Jesus. Will your fear of God push you to maybe not preach the gospel then and there, but maybe push you to say that you're a Christian. You might be mocked in front of your friends, 
But does your fear of God outweigh that fear of man? Who knows? Maybe afterwards, as you're walking somewhere with your friends, one of them comes up to you and asks, maybe mockingly, maybe a little less mockingly, why do you believe in all of this? Why do you follow Jesus? Will your fear of God push you to preach the same gospel message that we see here? Let's be followers of Christ who walk in the fear of God and not man. We're going to pray now. Uh, Let's pray first for those who want to become Christians because they've come to a proper fear of God. They know that they need forgiveness, that they need change. Uh, If you need this, uh, pray with me in the quietness of your mind. We're going to pray now. Dear God, uh, we know that we don't deserve you and your gift of eternal life. We're guilty of not fearing you and rebelling against you, and we're in need of forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son for me, that we may receive forgiveness. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give new life. Uh, Please forgive me and change me that I might live with Jesus as my leader and saviour. For the Christians here, we pray uh, for each and every one of us uh, that in our doings we may walk in the fear of you. Take from us hypocrisy and deceit. I pray that you'll give us a radical God-centeredness to our lives as we apply it to our, our money, our homes, our lives, time, and relationships. Help us to stand firm against opposition from within and without. Give us boldness through your spirit, to do this. Help us not to fear men, but to fear you. Our God and Father, who loves us so much that he sent his one and only Son to die for us, who rose as our leader and saviour. In his name we pray. Amen.